0: A gang of police thugs, renegades and perverted types. These were just some of the ways the Garda Special Branch were described by their enemies within the anti-treaty IRA. The Special Branch of Ungarda Garda which still exists today, of course, as the Special Detective Unit, traces its origins to the CID, or Criminal Investigation Department, of the Civil War period. This squad of detectives was set up in August 1922. They were based at Oriel House at the corner of Westland Row and Fenian Street in Dublin. Her recently published book called Ireland's Special Branch, the inside story of their battle with the IRA, 1922 to 1947, tells the story of the first few decades of the unit's existence and the detectives who lost their lives during this time. It was a turbulent period marked by regular confrontations with the IRA. The author is Gerard Lovett, himself a former member of Ungar the Siakana, who spent the... the final five years of his policing career in the Special Branch, retiring in 2004. And uh, Gerard joins me now. You're very welcome to the History Show. Thank you, Miles. You Mm. conceived Mm. of this book while you were actually working in the Special Branch, didn't you?
1: Yes, I was sitting in my office and the thought struck me that there was no book about the Special Branch. But just to be sure, I went on uh, Amazon.co.uk and the library online records Yes, I found books on the British special branch and the RUC special branch and even the South African special branch, but not about the Garda special branch. So I said I would take it on. And so began 20 years of research. (laughs) Mind you, I thought starting that it would be two or three or four years, but uh, anyway.
0: Well, we can assume, yeah. given that it took twenty years, that it was extremely thorough. Um, tell us about the origins of the of the special branch, because you can
1: really, you can. I suppose you can trace it back to Michael Collins, can't you? You can. You see, Michael Collins realised that once the Civil War was over, it would not be kosher to have the military on the streets to maintain order. So he knew that an Ireland section of the Garda Síochána was needed. And the, the Uniform the shikana, it was decided that they were to be unarmed. You see, originally they were to be armed with .45 revolvers, but after the Garde mutiny, it was decided that the new force would look uncomfortably similar to the RIC. So the Uniform force was to be unarmed, mm. but they also had to have an armed cadre of police and they started in... Oriel House as you said.
0: Now Oriel House is a, a, a quite a sinister name. It's sort of if you know anything about the history of the period it set, tends yes. to send a shiver up the
1: up the spine. Why was it seen in such a sinister light? You see the Oriel Housemen, I mean they quickly had a fearsome reputation. But these were former guerrillas, part of the uh, the the Michael Collins execution squad, the, the 12 apostles, and also the Dublin Brigade of the IRA, and they were guerrillas effectively who now found themselves in an unfamiliar policing role and they were ruthless i mean there's no i i decided from the word go that this was not going to be a whitewash i was going to call it as it happened and these men now they had no time for their former colleagues who had opposed the treaty i mean something like 80% of the tds returned in the june 22 elections were pro treaty they weren't all come on a go, like the Farmers mm. Party and the Labour Party and they were also pro-treaty. And they were very annoyed or angry with their farmer colleagues. And as you know, the bitterness of the civil war was alive and well. And it was time added on, Just to use a sporting metaphor, it was a time added on in the Civil War, effectively.
0: Now, as you say, you don't gloss over the, the thuggish elements of the yeah. of the special branch. I was curious when I started reading the book, um, you know, does Jared cover, for example, somebody like Charles Dalton? Uh, Charles yes. Dalton, who would have been a member of the Intelligence Unit during the War of Independence as a teenager, 17, 18 That's years right. of age. Uh, you do, I mean, you again, you don't gloss
1: over his activities and they were fairly horrendous at times. Yes, I mean, they were involved in numerous killings. Now, in some cases, as I said in the book, it's not clear whether it was the Oriel Houseman or the Free State Army were involved in them, but they were both involved in unauthorised killings. I mean, they were officially, I think, you always hear about 77 executions, the official executions. In fact, it was actually 81, 81 or 82 yeah, yeah. maybe. But the special branch, the Ordeal Housemen originally, and the intelligence section of the army were also carrying out a few extra ones on the side, about up to a hundred possibly during that period. And mm-hmm. Dalton would have been responsible for,
0: for some of those, as you no point out, as yes. you point out in the book. Yes. And I suppose one of the most notorious incidents then was actually after the I mean, the civil war was effect was effectively over, and that was uh, involving uh, Noel Mass, Captain Noel yes. Mass brother of
1: a future Taoiseach, Sean Lemass. Correct, yeah. I mean, that is the most famous or infamous case of that period. I mean, he was kidnapped off the street in Exchequer Street, I think, on the 3rd of July, 23. But he, his body wasn't found until three months later on the 12th of October, 23, up in the Dublin mountains.
0: So that was after the Dump Arms after uh, all uh, this declaration. Business.
1: And with signs of torture on the body. I don't want to be too crass, but the te- his teeth were pulled out and his hair was missing. And Now, some people say it might have been animals. Now, the animals might have pulled the hair out, but I doubt if they pulled any teeth out, you know? Uh, so, I mean, and uh, the assumption was that
0: he was a victim of uh, Oriel House or yes, well, Oriel House related activities. Oriel
1: House men usually get the blame for it. Yeah. But as I show in the book, they may not have been responsible because an, uh, an army officer, Captain James Murray, actually boasted about doing it afterwards. Now, if that's right or wrong I have no evidence to say otherwise. Now there were
0: however there were victims within Oriel House itself as well. You go into detail about some of the detectives
1: who were killed. Tell us about Matt Daly for example. He was Yeah, Oriel, Matt Daly. Man. He was shot somewhere down around Queen Street on the evening of the 22nd of December 22. A particularly tragic case. He died in hospital a week later just after Christmas on the 29th. He died. Now, the sad story there is that he was actually engaged to be married to a lady called Alice Lynch. They were due to marry a week after his death. Now, some years later, she married somebody else. And I met her granddaughter, Orla Murphy, and she kindly gave me his photo, which I have Mm. put in the book. But it was a particularly sad case. There were four of the Orla Housemen killed, three of them by the IRA and, and Thomas Fitzgerald by regular cr- criminals.
0: Because obviously the Oriel House, one of the elements of Oriel House was the criminal investigation department. So they weren't just involved in policing political crime. They were supposed to also be involved in
1: policing what we might call ordinary crime. Well, indeed, that, that is true. I mean, they, they, they took on armed Robbery. I mean, armed Robbery was rife hmm. in Dublin in those days. In 1922 alone, Believe it or not, there were 479 Aram robberies. In Ireland or in Dublin? In Dublin alone. In Dublin alone, alone. alone, yes. (laughs) I mean, that's over one a day. You know, I mean, post offices and shops and businesses and banks and so on. Like uh, like some of it, of course, obviously anti-treaty to get finance. uh, You know,
0: as you say, they were not known for their legal niceties uh, and there was no Garda Ombudsman to complain to. But citizens did actually take lawsuits, did they not, against
1: the special branch? Later in the 20s, there were lawsuits taken against the special branch and in some cases were awarded compensation. But I came across cases I mentioned in the book where a, a series of case, of successful cases taken against the special branch where the state paid the, the expenses that were awarded and they paid their legal expenses. Which to modern years sounds incredible. It's indemnification basically. Isn't exactly. It? I mean they knew they were standing by their men. They knew they were rough and ready and not to bother by legal niceties, as I said, but they were keeping the government in power. You see, there was a substantial minority of anti treaty People still around the country, you know. Uh, I want to talk to you about you know. You mentioned
0: that the the notion of time added on, and um, Kevin O'Higgins was a victim of time added on. That's right. But uh, I mean, tell me about the analogy this this that he makes about what the Civil War was all about. It was
1: about eight young men. That's right. And what was going on outside? And wild men outside screaming through the keyholes. That's right. And he, he, he quoted another expression of Cicero in the, in the Dáil. Salus Populi Suprema Lex. The safety of the people is the highest law. And the president, William T Cosgrave, told the Dáil that he didn't care if they had to execute 10,000 people, that they would do whatever executions were necessary. So this was the atmosphere that the police were operating in. And clearly the government were turning a blind eye if the police decided to carry out a few extra unofficial executions because there was never a call for an inquiry or never a condemnation that I could find. Mm. And I did a lot of research into this period. 20 years of it. Mm. And the
0: assassination then of Kevin O'Higgins in 1927, he was still Justice Minister I think when he was uh, assassinated. That's the the time added on. That's the extra time as it were. The Civil War still alive and kicking.
1: That's right. You see, Kevin O'Higgins was the most hated figure because of... He got the blame for the shooting of the four men on the 8th of December 1922. Rory, Dick, Liam and Joe as they called them. Well, um, he signed the, the death warrants. Well, he didn't actually. No? was so, so Richard Mulcahy signed the death warrants as, as head of the army. Uh, but, he, but he normally gets the blame for it yes. for some reason. Well, and exactly. apparently he was the last to agree to it. Hmm. I mean, the others were all for it and he was... You see, the fact that Rory O'Connor was his best man no doubt played heavily on his mind. But I found... A source for this—it's quoted in the book—that actually Richard Mulcahy, he was head of the army, so that he that he signed the death warrants. But it fact.
0: wouldn't have happened but if O'Higgins hadn't hadn't approved of it. Oh, he agreed with it eventually,
1: mm. reluctantly. Yes. So you see, he was shot by IRA men, although it wasn't an IRA killing, as I said. It showed. was complete opportunism. It was opportunism. The three boys were heading to Wexford in a stolen car, as you do, to go to a GA match when they came across O'Higgins walking along on his own. And they even argued among themselves, that couldn't be O'Higgins, there's there's nobody with him. And uh, they came back for a second look, sure enough, O'Higgins, and out they got and all three of them shot him. Now, even though he was shot numerous times, including in the head, he lived for about six hours afterwards, you know. Incredible. Incredible. now,
0: moving on then into into the 1930s, we're still in the Commonwealth period. In 1931, Superintendent John Curtin was fatally shot in, in Tipperary. Now, he is somebody who you would not necessarily have thought would have been
1: actively pursuing the uh, the IRA, but he was. Indeed, he was very active. Now, he wasn't a special branch man. He was a, a regular superintendent in charge of a district in Tipperary Town. But he his detectives, obviously, were, he was to send them out and they prosecuted guys for illegal drilling and so on and so forth from time to time. But the IRA decided he would have to go because he was being too active for their liking. So on the 21st of March, he arrived home at his home, a Frysfield house outside Tipperary town. And the gates leading to his house, one of the gates was closed across, which was very unusual, which was deliberately done so he'd have to stop and get out to open the gate and he was shot down by several gunmen there and his wife heard the shooting and she comes running out and in fact she was pregnant with twins she gave birth to twins uh, a month later so on the 18th of April she gave birth to twins but neither of them sadly neither of them survived Mm. When de Valera then comes to power in 1932 what is his
0: attitude towards the special branch and what does he decide to do?
1: Well de Valera was a bit I think he was a bit suspicious of the special branch. And it came to light particularly in August 33. De Valera sacked O'Duffy and he sacked David Nelligan, who was head of the Special Branch. And O'Duffy was offered the leadership of the Blue Shirts. He didn't found the Blue Shirts mm. as you as you'll read at times, he, but he was offered the leadership of it and he took it on. You see, he was a bit of a, a, bit of a, a megalomaniac, I think. He, he actually said one time that he was the third most important man in Europe after Hitler and Mussolini, which is a sure sign of a, a nascent megalomania. I Not think. Not much
0: of a compliment to Oswald Mosley, but
1: that's, <laughs> a little, that's beside the point. But however, he announced that he was going to bring 20,000 blue shirts on a march to Dublin, to the Leinster lawn there, where there was a, a, a cenotaph to Kevin O'Higgins and Arthur Griffith And uh, de Valera took fright. He thought that he was going to do a Mussolini on him. This is the March on Rome. Like the March on Rome in 1922. So he didn't trust the original special branch. So he brought in, in time, there was 367 of them eventually. But he brought in anti-treaty, his own men, anti-treaty IRA men, as special branch men. And that must have caused tensions within the special branch. Of course it did, because the special branch were looking out the window apparently in Dublin Castle and they saw these guys that they were chasing and arresting in, over the previous few years. And the first lot that were brought in, they got the shortest training course ever known in the history of policing, a 10-minute lecture. They were handed a £4.5 revolver, 200 rounds of ammunition each and they were dispatched down to the Doll to protect it. From the march of this 20,000 blue shirts. Mind you, there was never more than 8,000 blue shirts in the country, mm. but O'Duffy announced that he was bringing 20,000 of them. So
0: basically, those special dog. branch men were here's a revolver, here's 200 rounds of ammunition, <laughs> ammunition, go protect the doll.
1: Exactly. Now, the next lot got a bit more training. I think they got three days, you know? But, uh, <laughs> but these guys, like, they had no proper police training. Some of them, they didn't comply with the Garda regulations as regards age or height or. So, some of them were up to 40 years of age, and the maximum at the time, I think, was 26 or 7, something in that. To be region. enlisted. To be enlisted. Mm. And some of them had even served jail sentences previously. But that did not matter. What did matter they were loyal to De Valera and they knew how to use a gun
0: and mm. they would have also been loyal to Ned Broy who became Garda commissioner after O'Duffy and is this the, these are the, are these
1: the Broy Harriers the famous Broy Correct. Harriers you see there was a a pack of hounds known as the Bray Harriers i believe and of course the nickname stuck very quickly Bray Bray Bry, mm. Bry Harriers, you see. So when the it, name stuck. To the present day, even special branchmen are called Harriers by their opponents from time to time. When it comes then to,
0: later on, to 1939 plus, to the, the, the emergency, the outbreak of World War II in, in Europe, and uh, our great euphemism the emergency, yes. the IRA comes back into its own again. It sees an opportunity yes. to undermine the state, and obviously, of course, England's difficulty is Ireland's opportunity, etc. Of et cetera, course, et took the
1: words out of my mouth. That's correct, yes. They so what the, happens then? They saw this as an opportunity. You see, de Valera had tried to woo the IRA away from the gun and towards the political route but they weren't biting. So he began a clampdown on the IRA. So once the war started, the special branch was beefed up. There were new men put in charge and you see, the IRA announced that they were now the lawful government of Ireland. Uh, Tom Maguire, a veteran IRA man, the last surviving member of the Second Dahl in 1922, I believe, handed over authority to the Army Council of the IRA. Ergo, in their own minds, the Army Council were now the lawful government of Ireland with the right to make war. But De Valera. He was even more ruthless than Cosgrave, I, I venture to suggest.
0: Except in one incidence, and we'll, we'll, we'll talk about that. But um, uh, the famous German
1: spy, Herman Gortz, wasn't particularly impressed with the efficiency of the IRA. Indeed. He told them, you know how to die for Ireland, but how to fight for her, you haven't got the slightest idea, he said. And he said to somebody else that the IRA were the most incompetent lot I have ever met. <laughs> so he wasn't overly impressed with them. But they were still a nuisance,
0: there's no doubt about it, in the, in the early 1940s. And uh, this is where De Valera, I think, proves himself to be just a tad more sentimental than, than, than Kevin O'Higgins. Because in 1940, a special branch detective in Cork, a man called John Roach, Correct. is shot by Thomas ogue Ogue-McCurtain, the son of Thomas mccurtain who was uh, uh, murdered in the War of Independence. Uh, he probably should have been executed, he was sentenced to death. But Dev decides no.
1: Yes. You see, that was a very interesting case. You see, he was sentenced to death, as you said. But the night before the execution was carried out, Sean McBride, in a fairly clever move, he went to the High Court to appeal it, knowing well it would be refused, but guessed that the Supreme Court wouldn't have time to hear it on that day, so the execution would be postponed, which it was. So he went to Mountjoy to convey the good news to McCartan, only to be berated by McCurtain for doing that. He had said goodbye to his family, he had his made his peace with God, and now he said, I'll have to go through the whole lot again in two weeks' time. However, in two weeks' time, the Supreme Court rejected his appeal, but meanwhile, there was imp- intense pressure on De Valera to reprieve him. You see, a lot of De Valera's men were colleagues of Tomas McCurtain Sr., who fought, and as an addition, An appeal from Cardinal McRory, I'd say, played heavily on him. because the Cardinal Archbishop of Armagh. Correct. And McCrory and himself, both de Valera and McCrory, were lecturers in Maynooth College in 1912 or thereabouts and knew each other quite well. So de Valera yielded to the pleas and commuted the sentence. But he didn't do it in a number of other cases, did he? He regretted that afterwards and he didn't do it again. Every murder of a policeman where somebody was convicted thereafter was executed. Like the two detectives who were shot in Ratgar, there was two men executed for that. I mean, within uh, rapidly, this shooting in Ratgar was on the 16th of August, 1940. Emergency legislation was passed. This would be tried by the military court. There would be no appeal from the court. Your only chance was if the government commuted it. The government did not commute it and they were executed in Montjoy by firing squad on the 6th of September 1940, three weeks after. I mean, this was breathtaking. Mm. This was breathtaking. I mean, if somebody was being prosecuted for having a bald tyre, it would take longer than three weeks. I mean, it was incredible. Uh,
0: somebody who, well, at least, uh, well, certainly went down for taking pot shots at detectives was uh, one Brendan Behan. You Indeed. have a quote from him, by the way, at the back. Of the, I can't use one of the words. I can't, sorry, I can't use two of the words, but something, something, something intent on nothing less than grievous bodily harm. You can use your imagination to figure out what the first three words Indeed. are.
1: It's in the back cover of the book when yes, you're buying the exactly, book. Exactly, yeah. yeah. But uh, Behan fired the detectives outside Glasnevin Cemetery, 5th of April, 1942. Now, he got 14 years imprisonment for that. But he was released four years later, even though he got 14 years. That was like an amnesty after the war. A lot of them were, were released. But his account of what happened is a bit somewhat colourful afterwards. The detectives had a hard time trying to find him. And... Uh, they found him eventually in a house in Blessington Street. But, I mean, Behan gives a very funny account of, of how it happened, how the door burst open as if the devil himself was behind it. And these guys came in. He had some names for them too. But um, but apparently that was all lies because they discovered what really happened. He was walking along the street. Detectives detective spotted who he was and they grabbed him. And there was no... Struggler. No, that, that was nothing I mean, like that. Write,
0: writing fiction was his strong point, so I suppose Indeed, you could let him, <laughs> let him away with it. When you joined the special branch yourself in the year 2000, I mean, it had, had uh, never mind the, the, the 20s and 30s and into the 40s, it had a reputation for ruthlessness acquired in the 70s and 80s. You joined in the year 2000. Was there much of a sense when you joined of the history of this branch of Angarda Siakona?
1: Well, I was a young recruit in 1971 and 2 and I used to be over in the district court and I used to see these special branch tough looking guys coming in with prisoners and every one of them without fail, when they asked a question by the judge, said, I don't recognise the court and I was ast- astonished at this. So I, I took an interest in that part of policing because every one of them said the same thing. They all spoke with Northern accents. Even if they were from Dublin, it, it seemed to come out in a Northern accent. Later, the law was changed and they were brought direct to the Special Criminal Court after, I suppose, from 1974 or five onwards. But I knew a lot of guys who were involved. You see, I, I was told, oh, yeah, I, you weren't here when it was tough to be here. You know, there was peace, the, the Good Friday Agreement had yeah, been signed. Mean, you joined two years joined after it, the Good Friday Agreement. So it was after yeah. that. But uh, I was uh, most impressed it was a very interesting section of the Garda Sheikhan. I'd recommend any young guard out there to think about it. It's totally different. I've spent most of my life in uniform, but it was totally different. And dealing with people involved in subversion can be a very interesting experience. I mean, some years earlier, before I was in the special branch, I met a, a farmer. Well, he claimed to be a farmer, IRA man. He was arrested, who was brought to me into the station when I was the sergeant in charge of the station. And I had a big chat with him. I spoke to him for about half an hour and he told me all about stuff he was involved with, including that he was trained in Libya and how he, they crawled along, they were crawling along the ground carrying rifles and the instructor was firing live ammunition over their heads, you know, keep their heads down. Hopefully over their heads. Well, it was, I think, anyway. But... uh, I said to him as a kind of a joke I said I'd say you had to change your underpants after that (laughs) so he he looked at me and he said I had to change my underpants several times (laughs) during that week he says but uh, it was a very interesting experience I must say Absolutely Mm -hmm. Um, and as we
0: said now called The Special Detective Unit well this book is about the special branch it's called Ireland's Special Branch the inside story of their battle with the IRA 1922 to 1947 published by Eastwood Books the author is my guest Jared Lovett many thanks. Thanks for joining us on The History Show. Thank you, Miles. That's all we've time for on this evening's programme. Details of all our items, as well as podcasts, are available on our website, rte.ie forward slash history show. My thanks tonight to Mark Dwyer and Mark McGrath on sound and our researcher Ian Canelli. The History Show is a Pegasus production for RTE. For now, from me, Miles Dungan, and producer Lorcan Clancy, goodbye and thanks for listening.